Father God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this fellowship. I thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. I thank you for your glory and the glory that you shall reveal in us. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for our young people. I pray for our youth that you'd protect them, guard them, guard their hearts, let them walk with Jesus, even when they face many of the pressures of the world around them. Let them be faithful to Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and all that you plan on doing in the future with the building development, with the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that is coming, uh, with the new reformation and the the next outpouring of the Spirit. We thank you, God, for these, and we thank you that you have called us and enabled us to participate in these things. Lord, help us to walk together with you more and more and more faithfully. Help us to grow closer to you. Help us to live in honor of you. We praise you, we thank you, we worship you and adore you for this time. Now, Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand your word, help us to apply it and live it out, and let your spirit rest on me so I can bring your word to your people today through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In 1 Corinthians, we look uh, just one verse, chapter 14, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. And then let's flip over to 1 Timothy. While you're doing that, did I mention that today is Samuel's birthday? Probably didn't do that. He told me not to do that because, you know, he thought he might embarrass him. So don't tell him I told you, told you that it was his birthday today. Uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or the women, actually, must... Likewise, be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And then let's skip over into chapter 5 to verse 16, to the second half of verse 16. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. So uh, I won't mention now, because this is being recorded, that this is Samuel's birthday. Uh, So, you know, so the the whole world won't know. And I'll probably get a note from my sister saying, who's Samuel? Uh, So I won't say that here, because I don't want to embarrass the guy, you know, on his birthday of all things. So anyway, I just... uh, uh, just a little, little side note there. Uh, so uh, I, I, I'm really excited about today. Uh, I'm very, very excited about uh, ordaining Olashina because uh, he, he, the, the, the church has pursued this man for the better part of a decade. And he said, no, 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 no. Now's not the time. No, 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 no. Uh, but finally, you know, he, uh, I, I twisted his arm a bit. And the church wanted to nominate him, and so he took the plunge. He listened to the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm so grateful that he's done that because uh, he's been such a blessing already in our elders' meetings, bringing in the Word of God and everything uh, to us and prophetic words and things, and it's been very encouraging. And it's always encouraging when you see people like Olashina, who has a, a track record of holiness and godliness before the Lord, taking a, a step up, and engaging uh, in this important ministry. Now, that's not to say that those other ministries we have are unimportant. Every ministry is important. And being an elder is just one of many different kinds of ministries. Uh, In Paul here, he mentions not only elders who were called to lead the church, shepherd the church, manage the church, give oversight to the church, and actually protect the church is one of the big responsibilities biblically of elders. And then he also talks about deacons. And deacons, uh, in many churches, they're, they're like they manage the property. But that's not a biblical idea of deacons. In the Bible, deacons were people that were exercising practical pastoral care in the lives of people in the fellowship. So they would distribute the, uh, the offerings to the poor. Uh, they would be caring for the widows that really were widows. Uh, They would take the money that was brought in for the help to the poor, the homeless, and make sure that that was distributed properly. And uh, Paul was saying here to Timothy that, you know, every church needs elders, uh, and you don't need a lot of elders, you know, in any kind of fellowship. The the number of people that are actually called and qualified to be elders will be relatively small, but you also need deacons there. And you need a few more deacons than you do elders most of the time uh, because of all those practical needs that are going on. But you need those ministries. You also need ministries, the spiritual gifts that are there that Paul would talk about in 1 Corinthians uh, 11 to 14. You need the spiritual gifts. You need the people 
uh, who are teaching. You need the people who are preaching. You need the people who are engaging in prayer ministry. You need the people who are serving others. You need the evangelists that are going out onto the streets, uh, sharing the good news of the gospel, seeking to bring people into the fellowship. You need all of this diversity of ministries, and especially, even more, we need this as we're going into the future that God has for us, not only as a congregation, but even in terms of global Christianity. If we are to recapture the understanding of the church of Jesus Christ as a kingdom and priests unto our God who are designed by God to to storm the gates of hell, to advance his kingdom as a new society, as a new people, if we are to embrace that, we need to have all of this diversity of ministries operating in our midst. We need everybody to step up and do what it takes uh, to move the kingdom of God forward. Everybody in obedience, everybody in coordination under the leadership of the eldership team, uh, everybody working together to advance the kingdom of God. And this was Paul's purpose in writing Timothy. He said, Timothy, I'm writing this to you so that people will know how to behave in the church. I'm writing this so that people will know how to relate to one another in the church, to understand the leadership structure of the church, to understand how God is moving through the people of the church, because ultimately the church is the household of God. Now this concept of household in the New Testament was more than just your home. You know, we, we read the word household of God and we're thinking, oh, you know, the nuclear family, mom, dad, kids kind of thing, all together under one roof. But that wasn't the concept of household in the New Testament. The household uh, would have included most people in the New Testament. You didn't go to work to large factories and things like you do now. You wouldn't go to a place like Hogan Lovell's across the street and sit in an office. Everybody had a job. Most everybody had their own business. Uh, and if you weren't fortunate enough to have a business, then you would often work for somebody who had a business. And if you worked for somebody who had a business, you became part of their household. And so the household of anybody included their business, included all of their activities in the world around them. So if you were uh, somebody who worked for the leader of a household, you weren't related to them, Maybe, maybe you were a slave, you know, maybe you were somebody who got yourself into debt and, and had to be sold into slavery, and so you had to work for this guy, uh, that was a very common thing. Maybe you were just poor, uh, your crops failed and things like that, so you had to go to somebody and say, hey, can I work for you? Uh, any of these kinds of things. But if you worked for somebody, and your boss sent you on a business trip, you would represent not your boss's business, but your boss himself. Because you were part of his household. So it wouldn't be like where, I, where you would go and say, hey, I, I'm so-and-so, I work for this person in this company. You would go, or I work for this company. You would go, hey, I, I, I'm so-and-so, and I am effectively a son of this person. Because even if you weren't the person's son, you were actually part of his household and a representative of his household. And so Paul here says that the church is the household of God. When we go out 
wherever we are, we are representatives of our Father as part of His household. But as part of His household, we are actually the sons of God. Meaning the sons and daughters of God. We are actually the sons of God. It's not we could be. It's not like we're servants who might one day want to be the sons of God. We are the sons of God and we are part of this household. So when we go out, we are representative of God, of God, and our responsibility is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, we hold up the truth and we are the bulwark or the wall against the invasion of the lie that the, that the enemy wants to push and that the world wants to push. And there's lots of lies that are going around in our world today, lots of things that are being stated that simply are not true. Uh, interesting thing, I just uh, was reading an article, and I haven't researched this uh, in, in depth, but uh, there's been some new scientific studies that's questioning even the idea that some had tried to put forward the last 30 years that uh, your sexual orientation is something that you're actually born with rather than something that develops. And actually the, the scientists, not Christian scientists, the, the scientists that were reviewing the research are starting to say, well, no, that's not true. That's, that's not based in research. And there's so many things that the world tries to propagate that simply are not the truth. And as the household of God, we exist not only as God's kingdom, not only as priests unto God, not only to assault the gates of hell, but to uphold the truth and to hold on to the truth in the face of everything that comes against us that is not true. And also, as the household of God, we hold on to the mystery of godliness, which is Jesus. We are stewards of the mysteries of Christ. This mystery that Jesus, who was fully God, became fully human coming together, remaining fully God, fully human, to lead a sinless life, to die on the cross, really dead, be buried, rise again bodily on the third day, and ascend into heaven and is coming again as this unity of divinity and humanity. And it's a mind-blowing concept, and it's a total mystery how all of this works and how all this comes together. And we are stewards of that truth. We hold on to that mystery of godliness because we are the pillar and the buttress of the truth as the household of God wherever we go. And this is the reality of our existence. This is exactly who we are. And we want God to manifest himself. We want to see a mighty outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. We want to see the sick healed. I want to see the dead raised. I don't want to be the dead person that's raised, but I'd like to see the dead raised. Uh, you know, we, we want to see all the mighty miracles of God. We want to see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering their life to Jesus Christ. We want to see the gospel proclaimed faithfully in the churches and on the streets so that people surrender their life to Jesus. We want to see the seven and a half million people in a 15-mile radius of us who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior come to faith in Jesus Christ. All of these things need to happen, but none of these things will happen unless we know who we are, we understand what we're called to do, and we allow God's power to be released in and through us to accomplish these things because we can never accomplish them on our own. And we're in a season right now in Europe, we've been in a season right now in Europe, 
but we are definitely in a season right now where God is showing us that we can't do this on our own. I was talking with a young man uh, uh, just a couple of days ago, and uh, he was saying you know, how, how sometimes he, he just despairs a little bit because he sees the greatness of the challenge and he sees his own weakness. And I said, well, that's great. That's exactly where you need to be. Because it's not our strength that's going to get the victory. It's God's strength working in and through us that is going to get the victory. And in order for that to happen, we must be in proper order together conducting ourselves as the household of God, as God requires, understanding who we are, and moving forward in this reality. But there are two things that we want to keep in mind, and and today's message is not very long, but I want to talk about these two things that came from the text around this reality of us being the household of God. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says here, you know, you guys are all, you want manifestations of the Spirit. A gift of the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's proof that he exists. So whenever somebody prophesies accurately, it's proof that he exists. You heal a sick person, it's proof that he exists. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. He said, you all want manifestations of the Spirit, and that's good, but what does he say? He says, strive to excel in building up the church. In light of this reality that we are the household of God, that we are a kingdom and priests unto our God, in light of this reality that we're the pillar of the truth and the buttress of the truth, one responsibility we have is to strive. That means to work hard. That means to put our energy, our effort, our vitality, our time, our resources. That's an investment to strive And notice it's strive to excel, strive to be excellent, strive to be really, 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 really good, strive to excel in building up the church. That's our first responsibility. Now, it's interesting here. Paul is clearly concerned about people who don't know Jesus. Paul was planting churches. He was doing all these kinds of things. But notice how he says something that almost seems to be self-centered, church-wise. And you say, well, isn't that a contrast, a contradiction? No, it's not. Because Paul realizes that if the church is built up to know its reality as the household of God, the kingdom of God, the priests of God, then the church will be most effective at seeing lost people come to Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 2, the end of that, verse 47, I love what it says there. It does not say, and the apostles brought in a lot of new people to the church. It does not say that the church was really good in evangelism and so they went out and they won a lot of people to Jesus. What it says is that the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Who's going to add? It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be the Lord that adds to the kingdom. Doesn't abrogate our responsibility to go out and preach the gospel, by the way. 
And sometimes we, we get that mindset, that either-or mindset. It doesn't take that away, but it's the Lord. If it's going to happen, it's the Lord that does it. We just do our responsibility, and he does his responsibility, and it's the Lord. Now, why doesn't the Lord add more people to the body of Christ globally, or particularly in Europe right now? And it's because most churches aren't ready to receive them. Many, many churches in London, if the Lord added 100 people, 500 people, they wouldn't have no idea what to do with them. And so the Lord is going to add that, but our responsibility then is to strive to excel in building up the church. Then there's a second responsibility, and that comes there in 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul says this, Let the church not be burdened. Let the church not be burdened. Now, this is a really difficult thing for us because as Christians, we want to help. If you don't have compassion for other people, if you don't really care for them, if you don't want to help them, uh, if you don't want to do good for them, you need to question whether or not you're really saved because the normal Christian instinct is to help people is to help people, and there are a lot of people in the world who like to be helped. They enjoy it. In fact, there are some people who like to be helped so much that they never help themselves. And that's why Paul, in this context, he's talking about widows in the church. Now, remember back then, they didn't have a government that was going to give you Social Security uh, or a pension or housing benefit or uh, any kind of allowance. That, that wasn't there. That did not exist. So if you were a widow, meaning that your husband died and the husband was normally the person who owned the business, then your business would pass to your children. And if you didn't have any children, then the business would just basically evaporate, you know, because the, the idea of a businesswoman was largely unheard of. It did exist, Proverbs 31 woman, we see that, uh, but it wasn't very, very common. And so if you were a widow, especially if your kids weren't around, uh, the only options to you is to sell yourself as a prostitute or go begging on the street if somebody didn't care for you. And so obviously the church responded to that by saying, okay, we, we need to help the widows. We need to help those among us. And so there were some people who became widows. And, and again, remember at that age, working life was hard. So you don't have a situation where your husband might live to be 75, 80 years old commonly. Many of those men were dying 30, 40, 50 years old at the most. 50 was, was old in many cases. And women as then as today long outlived most men. So you had this situation where your husband could die when you were 30 and you could be a widow at a very young age. Now the problem was that there were some women who were perfectly capable of working, perfectly capable of caring for others, perfectly capable of taking care of themselves, who were allowing the church to take care of them. And so Paul said, listen, church, you need to help those who really are widows. You need to make sure that the person you're helping really cannot help themselves, really does not have the resources to help themselves. If they do, you need to say, okay, woman, get off your backside, get out there and do a job, get to work, provide for yourself, help other people, serve other people, do what you can do 
to make your way. And if you were absolutely incapable of doing that because you were infirm, you were sick, you were old, whatever, then the church could come alongside and begin to help you and begin to do, uh, do for you what you cannot do for yourself. But Paul said, let the church not be burdened. Now, what I often see in many, many cases over the years is that there are a number of people who actually need help from the church who don't ask for it because I don't want to be a burden. And there are people who don't need help from the church who really are asking for it and begging for it and pleading for it and seeking it. And, of course, as Christians, we say, well, we don't want to judge. We don't want to, you know... uh, we don't want to make a decision here and so we'll just help those who want want help and that means we don't have the resources sometimes to help those who genuinely need help so if you are genuinely in need you should never be afraid of asking for help because that's part of why we are here as the household of God but at the same time If you can do it, if you can take responsibility, then you should take responsibility and let not the church be burdened. And that's really the message. Everybody should strive to excel in building up the church and at the same time strive to do what, take responsibility for themselves so that the church is not burdened but instead is built up. And that's kind of that tension there. And if you're not sure, then ask. Because we're happy to sit down and work with you on that. So that's our call. It's strive to excel to build up the church and take personal responsibility so that the church is not burdened unnecessarily so that together we become a healthily functioning household of God displaying the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what, part of what God is doing in our world right now And that's how God is working in us. Molding us, shaping us, and forming us. And ultimately, it all comes back to Jesus. Because when the church is not burdened, it means that we are doing what we need to do to exalt Jesus in our own lives and in our midst. And when we're striving to excel in building up the church, a built-up church displays the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's all for Jesus. And we remember that every time we gather around this table. It's a reminder to us that we are the household of God, that we are the fellowship of Jesus Christ, that we are the people of God, designed by God for glorious purposes, to be his kingdom and priests, redeemed by the blood of Jesus from every nation, tribe, language, tongue, ethnic group, everything. All for Jesus. And as the household of God, we are the pillar and buttress of the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that Jesus Christ is coming to redeem the world so that the whole world reflects God's glorious kingdom until Jesus Christ creates a new heaven and a new earth. And all of this is encapsulated in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. It reminds us that Jesus paid the price for all of this when he shed his blood and broke his body on the cross. That Jesus is the one who has provided for us to have a way 
for all that Jesus wants to accomplish in us. So let's come to this table. It's a table open to all who name the name Jesus.